days, and then it says even the eighth day is a holy convocation, <clears throat> so there isn't eighth day tacked on to the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, making it a total of eight days, but as far as the feast itself, this is it, and it certainly has come quickly. For those on the phone line, we have meetings tomorrow at 11 and 3, uh, local mountain time here, so you know how to translate that to your area. Thus far in the festival, I have addressed the kingdom of God almost exclusively, but from a standpoint, mostly at least, of what it is like in terms of spiritual condition, what we need to do to be there, and goals and purposes we might have in this life in order to attain to that place. I want to look at it from a different perspective today and entitle this something more like the kingdom of God. Is it worth it? Or put another way, why would you want to be there? We are human and we have the lives that we are living here. And sometimes thinking about being in the kingdom of God, or being like God, or being spirit, is something beyond our capacity to understand, to grasp, and perhaps as a result we don't have enough vision, and we quoted at the very beginning that because of lack of vision the people perish. So today let's examine some things that might help give us more vision of what it will be like to be in the kingdom of God, what it would be like to actually be spirit instead of flesh. And though I know I cannot grasp it entirely, and you cannot either, at least we can ponder and think and look at some clues in the Bible and maybe get a little better picture of the way things shall be, and in so doing, motivate us more to want to be there, to give us more, let's say, transcendental hope of what can be. Because if you have something firmly in mind that you are headed for, it's much, much easier to cross the hills, the valleys, and the mountains, and the seas to get there. Have you ever in your mind wanted to do a certain thing, be a certain place, do a certain thing, and it looked almost insurmountable in terms of distance, in terms of money to get there, to sustain yourself while you were there for whatever adventure it might have been, whether it was climbing the Himalayas or laying on a beach in the Caribbean somewhere. But it seemed beyond your capacity to do Let's go first of all to 1 Corinthians 15. <coughs> this is a start. 1 Corinthians 15. And let's begin in verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. 
If there's not something more that is better than what we are experiencing today, and implied here, what other people are also experiencing today who are not going through what we are going through. People in the world do not understand what it takes, the commitment and everything else, to be part of the kingdom of God. And the trials, troubles, tribulations, afflictions, and difficulties that we will sustain in the process. Paul was very aware of that. He said, man, considering what it takes, other people have it better in this life than we do. They are not under constant pressure to control their thoughts, to control their actions, They can pretty much do as they please. Now they may suffer for it. I mean, look at the ravages of drugs and alcohol and misuse of various things that people do today. And they wind up with all kinds of illnesses, health problems, diseases, afflictions, and so on and so forth. But just in terms of going through daily life, they're not under the pressure that we are under. So that would make us, of all people, most miserable. Now then let's consider, is it worth it? Is what we are looking forward to worth going through what we have to go through to ensure that we be there? Verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. So he immediately addresses the resurrection here, that there is something beyond where we are today. For since by man came death, man's failure, man's sin, uh, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, through Christ who was also physical and died and was resurrected, and through him we have opportunity to live on the other side of the death that is coming upon us all, unless we're alive and remain when Christ returns. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. We know from other scriptures, we are candidates for the first resurrection, the bride of Christ, the 144,000. It says, Then comes the end of this age, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. So all the evil governments, <coughs> all those in a position to make our lives miserable by onerous laws and rules and, and various things they do, and even using their power to, in some cases, taser us or kill us or misuse us or abuse us, or throw us into prisons. Uh, We've had relative freedom in this nation that has not been enjoyed by many people on the earth and is not today. Ours are quickly being taken away. But all those powers will be gone. There will be no one around to torture us, to give us trouble, to give us fits. No enemies. They'll all be put down. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. What would it be like not to have any 
who were against you, who thought ill of you, or were enemies in any way. That would be kind of nice, wouldn't it? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Every human being's deepest desire is to live. We don't want to die. And we will go to great pains and extent to try to extend our lives by even a few days, weeks, months, or two or three years, or whatever, in terms of terminal illnesses. All we want to live. Now, does the fact that some people kill themselves change that in any way? No. They really want to live... But life has become so unbearable and so painful for some reason that in spite of the incredible desire to live, they will take their lives anyway. Because even though you want to live, your life is utterly miserable. Let's move on down a little bit. <clears throat> Verse 45. It is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So we were given life as human beings. It is a life that is transitory. It is short. It is filled with all kinds of pains and miseries and challenges. And since Adam and Eve, even with some curses that we still live with, by the very fact that we're human. Christ was here, and he doesn't have that anymore. He's a quickening spirit. He's, let's say, alive in a way that we are not. He does not experience boredom. He is more alive than we are. We can get bored very easily if things aren't exciting all the time emotionally, I guess. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man, that would be us, is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. As is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. So there's a difference that will be made. Verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We're going to be changed to spirit as God is spirit. Now, since we don't know what spirit is, maybe that doesn't impress us too much. Does that mean you're invisible? Does that mean you can't be seen? Does that mean that you're a spook or a little white cloud somewhere? What does it mean to be spirit? Would it be better than being flesh? And the answer is resoundingly yes, but it may be hard for us to grasp that. Flesh and blood is limited. It cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So, whatever there is good out there, we can look from this earth at night and see the stars, planets, look into infinity, and it is a beautiful sight. 
And I remember many times in life, laying, even as a child, laying on top of the haystack in West Texas, looking at the stars and wondering, what's out there? How far does it go? How far does it end? And I would try to imagine <clears throat> the end of the universe, because in my finite mind, there had to be a stopping point. So I would go out as far as I could see, looking at the stars in the Milky Way, and say, that must be the end. There must be a wall there. It can't be any bigger than that. And then my little mind would say, what's on the other side of the wall? Like the bear that went over the mountain to see what he could see. And he could see the other side of the mountain. It was all he could see. But we have a quest within us. We have a restlessness within us that wants to know what is beyond. How good is it? Is it worth it? We are so limited in our understanding. And as we've developed technology and telescopes and various things, we've all seen some of those things on the Internet or on documentaries or whatever of pictures of things out there that you can't see with your naked eye that are just stunning and incredible in the beauty that they have that we can't see. You know what? There will come a day when you can see all that. You won't need a telescope. <clears throat> I show you a mystery, verse 21. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when it does, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? I have relatives from the past that are dead today. I remember my great-grandmother, and I used to sit enthralled listening to her tell stories of happy Valley of Arizona. <laughs> and uh, coming out in a covered wagon and Pancho Villa visiting the house and having 12 kids and the tornado coming and turning the house upside down and she and all the kids sitting on the ceiling of Indians coming and taking all their food and I used to sit there with great big eyes listening to Grandma Miller shrunken little thing at nearly 100 years old that she was and she's dead now and so is her daughter, my grandmother that I have fond memories of my father's dead, and my mother is almost just as good as nearly. Sometimes she knows me, and sometimes she doesn't. You have relatives that have died. You have friends that have died. Death seems so permanent, doesn't it, to a human being? When you have a loved one that dies, <clears throat> and we take them wherever we take them, up here in our little cemetery and they're dead and they're gone we won't see them around here anymore they're gone and it seems so permanent but it's not there really is a resurrection of the dead incredible as it may seem 
I've seen lots of dead people. I've seen lots of dead animals. And they just seem to be pretty dead. That's just all there is. But death will lose its sting. Thanks be to God, verse 57, which gives us the victory through our Lord Emmanuel. Therefore, as a result of his description here of us turning immortal, he says, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the eternal, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the eternal. So he is going to bring about a resurrection of some of us that are right here in this room, of others that have already died. So we must abound and be steadfast and immovable. But is it worth it? What will we be? Let's go first of all to 1 John 3 after this. I think it's not really first of all, but first after that. 1 John 3, verse 2. <clears throat> Beloved, now are we the sons of God... And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. No man today, no human, can look upon God and live. He is so bright, so shining, that you can't do it and live. Then we will see him, and we will be able to look upon him, because we are going to be like him. That's an incredible thing. You can't even look at the sun out there today. If you think you can, just pop right outside this door and take a good long minute long look at the sun. And stagger back in here blind. Because you can't do that. He shines like the sun. And we will shine like him and be like him. We won't be dull or dowdy or plain or ugly or whatever we might think ourselves to be today. We'll shine like the sun. Sun's a beautiful thing to behold, and if you look through dark glasses, you can't even look at it, but you certainly can't look at it in its glory, nor can you look at Christ or the Father in their glory. Go to Philippians 2. First here we are sort of reviewing what it is that we shall be, and then maybe we'll discuss some about what that might be like. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 4. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Emmanuel. So he says, think of others, not just yourself, and have the mind of Christ. Now, what does he say right after he tells us that we need to have the mind of Christ? Who being in the form of God, 
thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He tells us in one verse to have the very mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ did not think it robbery to be equal with God. So if we have the mind of Christ, then we should be able to consider being equal with God and not think it is some kind of robbery or blasphemy or whatever mankind might think. The very mystery of God is that we become spirit and we become part of the God family and that we be like God or equal to in terms of our being, of our presence. We may not have the same office the Father has, but your children are human like you're human. You may be the father or the mother, but your children are equal to you, aren't they? And someday they'll be as big and ugly, big and nice as you are. Because they're equal. Now, as long as you live, you may be sort of in charge. Once they reach a certain age, you ain't much in charge anymore, but you're still the patriarch or the matriarch to a degree. But your children are taught that they're to grow up to be adult human beings, to become equal with any adult human being that's ever lived. And the same is true of the family of God. We will be made, raised, to be equal with God. And that's not blasphemy. That's having the mind of Christ to come to that reality and understand that. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the death, even the death of the stake. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Emmanuel, every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Emmanuel is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then he tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, because this is the calling that we have been called to, is to become God, part of God's family. Not to supplant his office or his son's office, but to take the office directly under them as the wife of the Son of God. Same spirit, same being, same status. Every knee bows to him. You know what? I probably will show you a scripture in a little bit that says that every knee, all the knees, or the people, will come and worship at our feet. We aren't worthy of it now, by any means. The angels, when they appear to men and have in the past, it says, don't worship me, worship God. And that's clear throughout the Bible, that you only worship God. But once we become God, it says people will come and worship at our feet. And you know what? It will be allowed. We won't tell them, no, don't worship at my feet, 
because we'll be the very bride of the Son of God. And then we will be worthy of worship of people that are left in the millennium or the great white throne judgment or whatever comes after that. That will be our status. Do we grasp it? Can we grasp it? We look to God now. But we're to be like Him, to be as He is. Isaiah 66 and verse 1 tells us something about the earth and how it appears to God. Now, the earth to me is a wonderful, lovely place. I visited many parts of it, every continent but Antarctica, and it is an amazing place. But what is it to God? Chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Eternal, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build to me, and where is the place of my rest? So his throne is so magnificent that the earth is only a footstool. A place to prop his feet. Now, I don't know how big his feet are, and this is only metaphor. But in terms of his majesty and his greatness and his power and his capacity to be everywhere, omniscient, omnipresent, and all those big words, the earth is merely a footstool by comparison. Now, once in a great while, I'll get on Google Earth, and maybe this is as close a thing as I can come up with. As that comes up, I have little place marks here and there around the earth, places that I've lived in Idaho or Montana or Wyoming or Alaska that I thoroughly enjoyed, or places that I might have visited at various times in my life. And you know how you can, you can just pull it right in. I have a house on a mountaintop I built in, in Montana, and I can just pull that mountain right in, and I can look down on top of that house. And you know what? It brings back a flood of memories. I remember the deer in the corral. I remember the elk that walked in front of the house. I remember the bears out in the corral. <clears throat> I remember looking out across the mountains toward Great Falls from up on that area near the Continental Divide. And all those memories just flood back in my mind. That's, those are my memories. You don't have them. You have your own. And maybe you do some things that way as well. Once in a great while, every few years, I'll drag out a bunch of pictures from times past in my life. And I'll get all sentimental and even blubbery once in a while when I look back at pictures of my children when they were little, classmates in college or high school or whatever, pictures that I have of the past. And it means something to me. You could look at those same pictures and, ah, oh, well, what? So what? But you've got your own picture somewhere. And if you drag them out, you'll get kind of sentimental too. Because there's lots of memories there. 
And just with the flick of the mouse, I can flip it over to Alaska and come down on that lake where we built a big log house, or over to the Nicobuna Lakes where I went to hunt for a few weeks one time, nobody there but me, and catching those grayling out of that little stream above the lake, frying them in butter. Oh, mercy. There ain't no better food on the face of the earth than Arctic grayling cooked in butter on a little propane stove out in the wilds of Alaska. Or I can go down to Port Moeller there near where the boats go out on the king crab fishing into the Bering Sea. And I can pull up that bay 30 miles long that I took a little six foot thin inflatable and went 30 miles up the bay there was only one guardsman there at that cannery and I was the only one 30 miles a bay and seeing those huge Alaska brown bears and then stalking one that was stalking me <laughs> and he managed to get back in the weeds and the grass about that high and I couldn't see him and it was getting dark, about 11 o'clock at night. Man, what if he comes back down that hill in the dark? I better go in there now. So I commenced to climb the hill through the grass, and I couldn't see him, but I could hear him breathing. You talk about scared. I wasn't bored at all. Another step, another step. And then we were eyeball to eyeball suddenly. And I saw something in his eyes. His eyes said, I'm going to kill you. And then he stood up and started my way. And then I knew I had read his mind correctly. And I'm still here, so we don't need to know the rest of the story necessarily. But the point I'm making is, I can go to different places. I can flip that Google map around and go to some of the beaches I've been on in the Bahamas or in around the Mediterranean or in New Zealand or Australia. The white sandy beaches. And think of all the memories that come from those places. And then I can have regret that I didn't go up to the Great Barrier Reef while I was in Australia and and get to ride on a great white shark. You know, I've been a lot of places, done a lot of things. But there are a lot of things I haven't done. A lot of things that might be on my bucket list. But you know what? My bucket's getting kind of full. The mountains are now steeper than they used to be for some reason, and they seem to be somewhat higher as well. And my knees don't work as well as they used to. Now, in my mind, I can go back to the top of the Wrangell Mountains sheep hunting in Alaska just like that. Or Google Map and look up the Wrangells and I can show you the little lake where we got our sheep. But getting back up there now would be difficult. Even in the bush plane, which we went in. But then we had to climb through tundra and sticky mud and stuff that my knees would rebel at today. So it's so easy to go to those places. But you know, I think I'm starting to work on my post-bucket list. 
Things that I couldn't do in this life that I might be able to do later. Now, I can tell you a lot of other places I've been. Just recently, I went up to a wedding of my son, and I got to see uh, Mount St. Helens and camped on Mount Rainier and then went over to Glacier and back down to Jackson Hole and saw some incredible, beautiful sights. Sights I'd seen before, but you know what? You have to drive a long way to get there, and it costs a lot, and you don't have time to do it all the time. I'm limited. I can think of these things. I can Google them, and I can sort of go there, but I'm not there. I can see a little bit, but the perspective is not the same. It's not three-dimensional. They try to make it as much that way as they can with an on-street view, but you really can't go there. You can go, and if you've been there, remember, and if you turn to a place that you haven't been, you can say, I wish I could go there, but you don't have any memories. It's just not in the bank. It's just not there. Now, if I'm like God, I can be all those places at once. <coughs> what a difference that will make. There are places you've been you'd love to go back to. I just recited a few things that come to mind in my life. And there are many, many more I could bore you with. But you've been a lot of places too, and done a lot of things, and have a lot of memories. And you know what? Pretty soon, those will fade and die when you die. They're your memories. They're no one else's memories. We love to share things with a human being so that we can go back and look at those. I've done a lot of things with Marla. We've been a lot of places together, Hawaii and Alaska and all over the United States and various places. So we have some memories that we can sit and talk about if we ever find time and enjoy again together. If I die or she dies, even that goes away and can't be shared anymore. And when you die, all those memories are just simply gone. We also forget a lot of things. And we don't remember exactly how they happened. Our memories are with, twisted and warped and it wasn't really that way. And you see a picture of it and think, that's not the way I remember that. But the camera said it was that way. But when you're quickened, when you come to spirit, you will have a perfect memory, and you can be anywhere you want to be, or everywhere at once, and be able to experience all those things. You know, I debate it sometimes. Would I rather live on the seashore or in the mountains? Well, give me a seashore that has mountains behind it. Solves the problem, I guess. But I've come to see I need to be living out here in the desert or the wilderness not, it's not really fully desert but it's a nice place you know what I think of other places I'd like to be and I can't be there I've got to be here but if I was there I'd want to be here I love places in the mountains but I love in Zion too and I can't be all those places at one time if I was a spirit, 
I could be there in an instant. I wouldn't have to go through this thing with Google Earth trying to find it. I mean, it doesn't take long on Google Earth, but it takes some time, doesn't it? And then you can't see it as well as you want to, can you? When you're spirit, you're there. Anywhere you want to be. Tired of the mountains, go to the beach. Just that easy. The earth is his footstool. Did you ever want to be an artist? To have the capacity to make some of the most beautiful artwork that there is? I've been to the Louvre, I've been to the fancy museums in London and in Washington, D.C. and different places. And I've marveled sometimes at the incredible talent that some people have and how they can paint something that I could barely draw a stick man, but they have this incredible ability to create something on a blank piece of canvas that's just incredible. They could paint a tree. Big deal. As a spirit being, you will be a creator. You can make a tree. You don't have to paint one. Make one. God is going to give us creative abilities. You probably attended live concerts. I certainly have of some of the biggest talents that the world, at least in my generation, has known. Singers, incredible talent and ability to sing and make your heart throb and make those little prickles come at the top of your scalp as they would sing or listen to a, the Hallelujah Chorus or Onward Ye People or some of those things and it just make your all your nerves just come together. Have you felt that? I, sometimes I can just feel it like cold coming up and then it just feels like it has a little starburst at the top of my head when you have that kind of emotion that can be brought by the inspiration of singing or whatever. Let's go to uh, Revelation 5. Revelation 5. And here, let's pick it up in verse 9. <clears throat> it talks about the prayers of saints going up. And it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Hear the words of the song. You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. That would make quite a song, wouldn't it? Speaking of God or Christ. And have made us to our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We sing some pretty inspiring songs out of our hymnal that David wrote. What an amazing talent he had to be able to write those songs to God and commit them to pen and ink. <clears throat> and we don't know how he played the harp or various other instruments as he sang them. 
And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, millions and millions of angels singing. I've been inspired just by 50, 60, 70, 80 people in a choir singing some very inspiring music. Once we're spirit, and once we're around the throne of God, we'll hear millions of angels singing praise, honor, and glory to God. That'll be an emotional high. What about you and me? Chapter 14, verse 3. It's talking of 144,000, the bride of Christ here. Well, let's go to verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. Have you been to Niagara? Have you heard the thunder of those falls, or Victoria Falls in Africa? Or even the mist of the Yosemite Falls, even though they can be pretty impressive in the spring. Later on, it just mists down, sort of. Many waters can be very soothing. I've sat on some beaches and heard some waves of many waters that could be very soothing and restful and helpful and calming. And then I've heard thunderous waves that would scare you to death almost, especially if you're out in a little boat floating around in 30-foot waves in the Gulf of Alaska or somewhere. Scary business. Anyway, here's the voice of great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. So we have stringed instruments, and then they sung it were, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred forty-four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Once we are changed to that first resurrection we will be given a new song that has never been sung before the throne of God, and we will go there with all kinds of instruments and harps, and Christ himself introducing it. My bride will now sing a new song. Father, you've never heard this song. Angels, you've never heard this song. Twenty-four elders, sit back. You're going to hear something special today that you've never heard before. And then we, the bride, are going to sing a new song to our husband and his father. I don't want to miss that one. I get a little prickles going in my scalp just thinking about that and reading it. Not even hearing it yet. And I've used to say, I wish I could sing. And then somebody would say, I wish you could too. <laughs> but you know what? I will be. I'll be one of the greatest singers the universe has ever known. Me. And you. will be the greatest singers that have ever been. We'll sing sweeter than the angels and the 24 elders. We will be above them. We are made for a little while lower than the angels, Hebrews tells us, but later in glory we'll be higher than the angels, more talented, more capacity, more ability. 
You'll sing in a choir like has never been before. I've been pretty inspired by some choirs and singers on this earth. God like this. You want to be an artist? You can be any kind of artist you want. You can make objects of art. This whole world is filled with them. A lion, an elephant, that's a work of art. A tree, it's a work of art. We won't be limited to just painting it or getting out a book and singing along with the words. We can create music, write it, sing it like it's never been sung before. You want to be a human forever? I didn't think so. I don't. There's an item I want in my post-bucket list. After I die on this earth, I want to be resurrected. And I want to sing with 143,999 other people a new song before the Lamb and my Father in heaven. That's post-bucket. My bucket list today? You forget it when you die. You did all these wonderful things. You know, they talk about a little child with cancer and how he loved the Boston Red Sox, or what, pick a team. And some member of one of those sports teams heard about him and decided to visit a hospital with that child. And the little child got to see his hero before he died. But you know what? Then he died. And he doesn't remember that anymore. The only ones that appreciate it are the parents or the brothers and sisters that witnessed it. But then someday they'll die too. And they'll all be gone. It was just a blurb on the sports page anyway. But when we sing before the Father and the Son, it'll be remembered forevermore. And it'll be done again and again forevermore. There's a difference between the flesh and the Spirit. Let's go to Revelation 1. I've already described some of these things in part, but let's see it right here in Scripture. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So John was projected to the time that Christ is going to be coming back to the earth, the day of clouds and gloominess and horror for most people, <clears throat> but a time when we will be either changed or resurrected from the dead and go to the throne of God. I heard this voice or in a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. That which you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. He names them. Verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Incredible voice. A voice that we would all like to have someday. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Candlesticks made of pure gold. That would be impressive. You know, we, we love to have someday a little gold band or a little ring with 
a small diamond in it, or even a pretty good sized one, if we dream big. Just a little gold goes a long way with a human being. But here there were seven golden candlesticks. In a moment we're going to talk about a city of pure gold. People will go to incredible lengths to find gold on this earth. The gold rush in California, the gold rush in Alaska. So many of those miners went up and died of starvation, food poisoning, bitter cold. Very few found gold. And those that did blew it for the most part, most of them. Here's seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot. So he looked like the Son of Man. We're made in the image of God. You're not just a spook when you're spirit. Spirit can see spirit. The world pictures God, I don't know, as some kind of a little white cloud that cried or some old guy with a long beard sitting on a throne somewhere kind of out of it. And if they think about going to heaven, what are you going to do? Sit on a cloud. I remember a cartoon about a guy floating along on a cloud in heaven. Man, I wish I'd have brought a magazine. <laughs> Boring as can be. Doing, having nothing to do for eternity except sit on a cloud. Don't think so. God breathes. Do you know that? talks about his breath being as the hoarfrost. It talks about his face, his hands, his feet, sitting on the footstool of the earth. We're made in the same shape as God. We can't see spirit, but spirit can see spirit, and we'll be able to see the form and the fashion of other spirit beings. So John is projected there in a vision and can see what is on the screen, the vision. And this is what he saw. Someone that looked like a man. But he was clothed with a garment down to the foot and a girt and girt about the waist with a golden girdle. So he had this long, probably white garment and then gold all around his middle. That'd be pretty impressive. We think we got it made if we can wear a little white little gold chain around our neck. He's got it all around him. His head and his hairs were white like wool. Resplendent. Not yellow like a lot of old people's hair gets today. But white like wool. As white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now we, how close do we get to that? You look at somebody's eyes and you like eyes that seem to have some intelligence there and they might kind of crackle and shine and spark a little bit. Or like the old stories about, honey, your eyes are like pools, cesspools, you know, all that old stuff that we do as kids. But no, some that sparkle with intelligence, you like that. 
It's nice to see something that's not vacuous, but has some <coughs> life to it. His eyes sparkle and shine like a flame of fire. Wouldn't it be nice to have that kind of eyes? And his feet like fine brass. Take your shoes off someday and look at the comparison. Ours get old and wrinkled and knotty and corny and <laughs> red and turned in and the toenails go into each other and, you know, all kinds of weird things before we get old and shriveled and die. His feet shine like fine brass as, and as if they burned in a furnace. Not only did they have the likeness of brass, but shiny feet. Beautiful feet. His voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The ability to say the right thing at the right time, to be able to cut through any baloney and come up with truth and verity and veracity. Never misspeaks, always says the right thing. And his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. The biggest, brightest day that you can look at the sun is the way Christ's face looks. That'd be nice to have a face like that, instead of what we look in the mirror and see. Look, by comparison. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, even in vision. This is greater, more majestic, more powerful than I can even imagine. And you just drop to the ground. It's so impressive. And he laid his right hand upon me and saying to me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of life and death, or hell and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So then he goes on to speak to those seven churches, which are represented by people who have been called out today. They may have been those to tale through history, but the finest, biggest, fullest fulfillment of the seven churches is right here at the end time. Let's notice a few things that he says will happen to you and me if we are made part of the kingdom of God. Revelation 2, verse 1, the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand. Remember, we're to be like him, and we'll see him as he is. So, when he describes himself here, he's also describing us. That's the reason I read this part of it, not just what he promises, because this is promised too. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. 
Let's not go into the works. Let's not go into the things that he has negative to say. Let's go on down to the part that we're focused on today. Verse 7. He that has an ear. Listen up now. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Adam and Eve were denied that. You and I will be given opportunity to eat of that, and we will live forevermore. That's pretty neat in itself. You might think that when you're 16, that you're going to live forevermore because you pretty well consider yourself immortal, and if you drive a car 130 miles an hour, you're not going to wrap it around a telephone pole. Not you. But there comes a point in life when you begin to realize... You're not immortal. And many right here are so immortal you can barely get from the bedroom to the kitchen. And I have days like that. My knees don't want to work. Not then. You live forever. And in good health forever. Go on down to chapter 2, verse 8 now. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Our relatives have died. We may die. But we'll live again. There's the hope of the dead, the resurrection. That's a pretty good promise in itself. Now on down to verse 10. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have (coughs) tribulation ten days. Be you faithful to death, and I will give you a crown of life. Literal crowns, he says he's going to make up there in Malachi 3, with jewels on them, but also the crown of life. Everlasting life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. That's a pretty nice promise there. If you overcome, you're not going into the lake of fire. You're going to live forever. What kind of a promise is that? Nobody on this earth can promise you that. The best promise we might possibly make on this earth is to someone we're marrying and saying, I will love you and cherish you until death do us part. That's as far as you can go. Christ, your husband-to-be, promises you to live forever and ever. Happily ever after. We mouth it, but it ain't so. Happily, maybe, and only till one of us dies. As far as we can go. He takes it a lot further than that. (coughs) 2 verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he which has the sharp sword with two edges. He reiterates a lot of the things we read in chapter 1 to the churches, to us. Brings it down personal. Go to verse 17. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. He gave manna to them in the wilderness for 40 years. What did that do? He gave them all the nutrition, all the health, all the strength, all the energy that they needed to do what he had given them to do. This is a hidden manna. This is something that he will give that we can eat of and vibe of and enjoy forevermore. And will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knowing or knows, save he that receives it. So the 144,000 are all going to be given a white stone with a name written on it. And they'll all be different names. And you are the only one who knows what yours says. God himself will look at you and your life and the fruits you have produced and he's going to summarize those and he's going to put them in a name that he gives you. Remember, he's changed a few people's names through history. Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, and various other ones. Because their lives were one thing, and then they came to be something else, something better than they were. And we're going to be far better than we were, and we're going to get an upgrade. You won't be Tom anymore. You won't be Jane anymore. You'll be, who knows, but me. Because your reward is going to be reflected in that name. It will describe your character for what you have worked on and what you accrue at the time of the change to spirit. All the gifts and abilities and capacities that will be added. It's important that we work and gather treasure in heaven and produce fruit 30, 60, or 100 fold. Because what we produce toward the kingdom of God by living with and loving our friends, neighbors, and relatives and loving God is going to be reflected in our name. Now, I don't think your name is going to remain secret forevermore because you will have been taught by then to give, to share, and so on. And it's going to be neat, really, comparing names. What's your name? Tell me yours first. You sitting in the bottom chair or the top chair? Your name will probably reflect that to some degree, but it's going to be good no matter what. We had a fellow in college named Julius U. Ulysses, I think. Julius U. Fink. He was a little fellow about this tall, and he epitomized what Fink meant in the sixties. And he got teased mercilessly until they made a rule one day in the college forum, do not tease Julius U. Fink anymore. We barely kept from laughing out loud, but it was serious. Poor guy, to be saddled with that name for life on this earth. 
I hope, Julius, you think, as I remember him, was faithful to God, maybe still is, he's my age. I hope he'll be in this first resurrection and he'll have a name that you wouldn't believe. Changed. Different. He'll be different than he was, just as I hope and pray I'm different than what I was and am. A new name written, <clears throat> verse 18, And the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Going on down. Uh, that which you have, verse 25, Hold fast till I come, and he that overcomes and keeps my works to the end... To him will I give power over the nations. Power is something that human beings desire. Human beings have desired to rule the earth in the past, and they've gone out conquering and been proclaimed king of the world. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great tried it, Napoleon tried it, Hitler tried it, a lot of people have tried it. Very few have truly succeeded, and they didn't succeed for long. But men like power. Women like power, too. You might say, well, I don't want to hold any public office. I don't want... Power doesn't turn me on. Yes, it does. You may not recognize it, but I've cited this before. You're just... Maybe you're just a wife with children living in your house on the block. And all the kids down there except your kids are mean little brats. And they harass and bully your kids and cause all kinds of problems in the neighborhood and their dog messes on your lawn. You want power. You would love to have the power to make those kids straighten up, quit bullying, be nice, play nice, quit fighting, don't hit my son with a ball bat anymore. You want power. Now, it may be limited in scope as proposed to rule in the world, but everybody wants power. They want influence. They want the capacity to change things. I've been, as I said before, to some mighty beautiful places on the earth. On the other hand, I've been to some other places on the earth where I saw people carrying their water to cook with, several miles in a pot on top of their head to a little place where they had to scrounge to find enough sticks to build a fire, to heat the water, to boil whatever it was they could find to eat. Their children starving to death and having diseases that made their eyes cake and matter and skinny as a rail and dying. You've seen the pictures pulling at your heartstrings of the little children dying in Africa or Asia or wherever, and please send $10 to save this child or you know, whatever baloney it is at the moment. And it can't be fixed. You'd like power to reach in and fix that, wouldn't you? To heal it, to make it right. God is going to put us in a position not where we pray and try to have faith to make a prayer be answered, but in a place where we can actually answer those prayers and fix those problems. 
There's the kind of power he'll give us to rule over the nations. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. The angel of the church in Sardis. These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name. Let's don't go into that. But the one who has all this power. Uh, Then down to verse 5. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, pure, clean, sinless, unable to sin, not wanting to sin, having thoughts that always go upward, not downward. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That would be quite an honor, wouldn't it, to have Christ himself go before the Father on his throne on the sea of glass and say, Father, this is one of the members of my bride. This is their new name. Wow, what a name. This is God, except my bride. This is her. And your name, whatever it is, is one of them. to have it brought before the Father and the myriad millions of angels. That would be quite a stage. People today, whether they're singers or actors or whatever, like to have the paparazzi. Well, they don't like them because they bug them. You know, I want the fame. I want the acclaim. I want to be revered and worshipped by all these people. But just keep them away from me because I like my privacy. Fame, power, we can have the fame without losing the privacy, without losing the good things, we'll be looked up to. Everybody wants to be recognized. Everybody wants to be thought well of. We'll have the whole universe worshiping at our feet. Pretty impressive. Chapter 3, verse Seven. The angel of the church in Philadelphia, which everybody thinks they are, right. These things says he that is holy, he that is true. If he's holy, you'll be holy. Completely holy and true. He that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. Wouldn't it be nice to have the capacity to make a decision and nobody could reverse it on you. Nobody could give you trouble over it. It would be the right decision and everyone would accept it because of the wisdom that you have. Christ is like that. He can say something and like the Gentile kings used to think they could do, so let it be written, so let it be done. And that worked a little bit sometimes once in a while. Here it'll work forevermore. Verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that patch which you have, that no man take your crown. Your crown's reserved for you. Don't let anybody take it away. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. 
I meant to have time to talk about that temple today, and I may run out. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write upon him my new name. His new name. Our new name. Verse 14, the Laodiceans, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, Christ, is who addresses them. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich. You probably at some time in your life dreamed about being rich. How about owning the universe? Maybe you wanted to own a duplex and get rent from it or, you know or maybe the Trump Tower or whatever, and get lots of money from it. He's been bankrupt a few times too. But you may be rich. You'll have the whole universe. Can't dream any bigger than that, can you? You won't just have the earth, you'll have the universe. And white raiment that you may be clothed. No one can say a word about you because you are absolutely pure, clean, white. You have no skeleton in your closet, nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. That will all be wiped away and you will be absolutely pure, white, and holy. I can't imagine it. But your shame of your nakedness do not appear. And anoint your eyes with... Oh, let's see, where... I, Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, and so on. <clears throat> Verse 21. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. So the throne of God, the throne of all the universe, if we overcome, we will sit down with the Father and with the Son on his throne. He's going to have to string it out and make more chairs, but they'll be there. And we'll sit with him on the throne of God. Now, if you sit on the throne of God, you will be worshipped as God. Will you not? We are so far from worthy of worship today. And we fall on our face, as John did when he even had this vision of Christ. Scare us beyond measure then we will have that power and that presence and that greatness. And human beings will come and worship at our feet as we worship at the feet of the Father and the Son today. There's some incredible promises here, aren't there? Of what the kingdom of God will be like. And I'm only half through. Well, there is tomorrow. So I think we'll stop right here.